Yeah, we've obviously just been away <clears throat> for a little bit um, down at the coast, and uh, uh, it was a great time just to be able to uh, just watch the ocean and watch waves. That's my, one of my happy places. Um, swimming as well, going into the surf, and uh, the surf was really rough. Uh, Jordan and I uh, at Salt Rock swam out a few times to beyond the breakers, and actually there were times we swam, and as you know, Jordan's a national swimmer. We couldn't get out. That's how how strong the, you know, the... Uh, what do you call it, the riptides were. And then we started to watch the locals, and we realized, oh, wait, they're going out that way. And then we found the riptide that took you out, and then it was a lot easier. But we watched how people with, with flippers on and boogie boards gave themselves everything to get out there and just couldn't get out there. So uh, it was fun just to be able to go and swim, but at other times felt like you were out of control. You've got these waves breaking on you, and I know that that's what life is like, isn't it? There's the exhilaration of... of, of, of of getting somewhere and persevering through to get somewhere. And there's the, the feeling of, oh my goodness, this wave is going to drown me. There were some waves you'd go under them and, and you'd come up and it would just suck you back under. Um, and, uh, you know, the lifeguards, Louis said, were a bit nervous when Jordan and I were out there. But we had fun and uh, always good to be able to get away and to get some R&R &R and, as you can see, a little bit of a tan. Um, and hopefully I'm not looking as, as ragged as I was before I left. Um, but as we know, back to reality, <laughs> next week maybe it may, may look quite different. Um, as you know, we've been doing this series, um, <clears throat> What Does God Want? And it, it's, it's a long series. And I know, you know, as I said two weeks, three weeks ago, was, you know, some people are going, where are you going? What is this on about? And we're actually starting to get to the practical side of things. Because let me go through what we've been through. Is, and I'm not going to go through all these details. All I want to say is that God created you and me created humanity out of a deep love for us. And if, and if we miss that, then we miss the whole story of God. And we see him very differently. What he did was he gave a mandate to Adam and Eve. It wasn't just to Adam. It wasn't just to Eve. It was to both of them to go and extend Eden, to go and have dominion, to go and rule and reign, to multiply where heaven and earth met into the rest of the world. That was the mandate. It hasn't actually changed. And I wanted to demonstrate that to you this morning. Eden is a place, as I said, where heaven and earth coexist, where God's heavenly family, which we spoke about, that God has a heavenly family. He's got other spiritual sons, and they call them sons of God. I don't know whether they don't, they're not genderized. Uh, they're sons of God. They are spiritual beings that God has created that are in heaven. And where this place of Eden is is where we coexist and we help God administer the creation in which he gave us. And that's why we've got this thing of God's spiritual family, God's heaven, uh, earthly family, which is us. Now, he gave us free will, which most people would say was probably the biggest mistake he made. Because what happens is through our own understanding, we can go, oh, Adam and Eve. No, no, us. Let's, let's include us in humanity. That on a daily basis, we make wrong decisions and bad decisions. And that lands us in a place where Genesis 3 comes into play, where the, a death Death enters humanity. We were made to live forever. I don't know if you know that. But because of sin entering into, onto, into Project Planet Earth and into humanity, we died a spiritual death that day. And ever, every human being born from there is born, in a sense, spiritually dead, but God makes them alive. Even though we have a spirit, it is estranged from God. We are born outside of the, God, the family of God. And it's important for us to understand that. And so what happens in this process is then, God sends, um, well, before God sends the flood, is these spiritual beings come down to earth called the watchers. Go read it. 
and sorry, their watches. And they violate the boundaries of God and they have sex with humanity. And they produce the Nephilim. And the, the depravity of humanity goes to another level. It's still there. That depravity, the, the, the witchcraft and all of that stuff was taught by the, by, by the watchers. That's why God does, does, didn't, doesn't want us to get involved with that stuff, with astrology and all of that. He sometimes uses it, but, but he doesn't want us to get involved in it. And then God sends the flood to, to destroy all of that. But it tells us that some of the Nephilim survived that flood, despite we think that it was only Noah and his family. And we go and we read the text, and when we understand that, oh, my goodness, that these spiritual beings, these watchers, created a depravity amongst humanity that exists today. And then what happens is, as we go through to you know, Genesis 11, where the idolatry and the witchcraft is going to such a level that they start to build this ziggurat, this thing called the Tower of Babel, in order to be their own gods, to show themselves out to be better than God. And then God gives them all these different languages, and he hands the nations, he disinherits them. And he says, go, you can now be led by, and I'm going to hand the nations over to spiritual beings, 72 of them. And so the spiritual beings, the sons of God, God hands them over to, and he starts afresh with Israel. And he says, I'm going to start, and I'm going to say to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to multiply you. I mean, obviously, Abraham's going, flip, I'm 90 years old, and, uh, well, 70 years old to start with, um, and my wife's the same, and 25 years later, they only have a child in Isaac. But the point is, is, God promises that he will extend what he's creating in, in Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, despite the fact that he had disinherited them. So the mandate, it was almost like it was uh, Eden mandate 1.1. Let's, let's create Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Abraham and Sarah are going to start a new nation that is going to extend and become a blessing to the rest of the nations of this world and bring them back into the fold of God. It was God's plan all along. The thing is, is that uh, Romans 1 tells us that we as humanity, we invent ways of doing evil. Do you know that? Just listen to the news. I mean, it is bizarre what is going on in our world today. Where people say, no, I'm born in the wrong body. So instead of changing the way I'm thinking, which I believe in a lie and a false thing of, of, what I'm, of my belief system, I just change my body to match what I'm thinking. <laughs> We're actually we're supposed to renew our minds, bring into submission to Jesus Christ. So we see all of this, and we see that what Jesus did and on uh, Resurrection Sunday, I showed how the, the death, burial, and resurrection brought the rest, and not just death dealt with the, 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 um, the death issue, but let me go over here. It didn't only deal with the death issue, but dealt with the depravity issue, dealt with the idol worship, the rebellion, and restored the nations back to God. So what Jesus did was far more magnificent and far more bigger and far more spectacular than we ever thought or imagined. Because traditionally, we've only been kept in Genesis chapter 3. And when we understand that, we know, and I love what Louise said last week, and I know it's a Michael Heiser quote, but the cross is where the dead, the exiled, and the disinherited meet and get restored into the pattern and the plan of God. And so we, by nature, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We're dead. Do you know that? Have you ever gone and tried to speak to a dead person? How much of a response do you get from a dead person? No, you need to get them alive. There needs to be the defibrillator of the Holy Spirit to get our heart beating, to renew our spirits, 
because we're born outside of God. We've abused the, the, our free will of God. We've violated every aspect of what God has called us to. And what we then do is we manipulate and abuse others in these self-destructive ways, and we don't live in the image that God created us to be. We really are sinners, self-absorbed and rebellious. And as Romans, as you can see there, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us are immune. We can look at the Hitlers and the Putins of our day and whatever else and look at those guys. But actually, if we exceed the speed limit by one kilometer versus, I mean, unbelievable how some people drive, driving back from Durban. There were guys that must have been doing close to 200 k's an hour on that road. Seriously. Now, I promise you, there's one guy in a Mercedes came flying past us, like Jordan was driving, and he actually got a fright, because clearly didn't see him coming, he's driving at that kind of speed, but if Jordan was doing 121, just as bad as the 200 kilometer an hour, maybe the implications would be different if they had an accident, but the point is, is we all fall short, we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God, and it's really important to understand that, otherwise we just keep pointing fingers at each other rather than moving forward in what God wants for us. So, if Jesus has restored all of these things, the fact is, is that he left Project Planet Earth and he said, I need to leave because I need to give you another paraclete. Such a beautiful word when you start to unpack what the paraclete means. The equivalent word in Hebrew is the word that we understood from Genesis chapter 2, I think it is, where God provides Adam with a paraclete his wife, Eve. And we think it means helper. But actually it can mean advocate, it can mean fortifier, it can mean somebody who brings strength, somebody who undergirds and brings forth. So we've treated women as this little helping servant subservient, when actually, no, they are alongside us in terms of what God has called us to. And what's happened in the church is we have made women to be second-class citizens. We've been to, and this is not in my notes, and I don't know why I'm speaking on it, but we've been to a meeting where women were called auxiliaries and asked to leave the room so the men could speak. Now, I'm not trying to bring down others. I'm trying to elevate the fact that women are not subservient and secondary and less-classed citizens of the church and of the Eden mandate. Women and men are called equally to extend the kingdom of God. We're going to look just now at the, at the mandate given to us in Matthew 28. What does it say? Go and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say, oh men, only you go and make disciples. No, as the church, we've made it a gender issue. And the world has perverted that. And unfortunately, the church has fallen into the trap of excluding women from certain things. And I think God is restoring that back to the church, that the Eden mandate is husband and wife, men and women together, extending the kingdom of God and, uh, and achieving the Eden mandate that God has, has called us into. Anyway, it was an aside and for free. So you got, you got a very mark ad there. The point is, is that Holy Spirit comes and fills us and lives with inside of us, and we become the little Edens with arms and legs. We become a sacred space because we used to be a sacred space before sin entered this world where God was present. Now we have God present in us and we become little Edens and we become the ability to be able to go and bring sacred spaces and touch people with God's fingerprints. 
So the gospel, as Louise says, is the antidote to depravity and is also the means through which there's the restoration of Eden and the restoration of the nations back to God. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And guess what? We are called to be disciples that go and proclaim that good news of the kingdom to the nations of this world. So let's get into that. What are you talking about, Gary? Okay, so the gospel. Louise shared this, and I'm covering some ground, I know. Maybe we've already covered, but it's important for us. As you can see, we're building upon block upon block, precept upon precept, because we want to practically help you guys move into a place where it's not just about the leaders in the church that are going to the nations, but it's about all of us. And when we say going to the nations, that includes the neighbor next door. That includes your colleague at work, and we'll get into that. Let me not get ahead of myself. The, the thing is, is that, as Louise said two weeks ago, the gospel has nothing to do with personal enlightenment. Nothing. God is not calling you on a, on a journey of self-discovery. He's actually calling you to follow Jesus. And that is what a disciple is. Because in that process, what happens when we discover who God really is, when we understand exactly what he has done, why he created us, and his love, his, his unbelievable love for us, then what happens is, is when we see who he is, we see what Jesus has done, we actually find out who we really are and who we are becoming in terms of we are becoming that which we already are. And we get onto the journey of that and onto the road of that. See, I don't know about you, but I don't want to follow myself. I don't know if you've ever tried to follow yourself. It doesn't work out too well. When we follow what we think we should be doing rather than what Jesus has told us to do, it becomes a problem. And like I say, we are called to follow Jesus. He is the only way, truth and the life. He is the only way to the Father. And this is in essence being with Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he would be doing if he was me is really the essence of discipleship. So salvation, we all know it's received through faith, isn't it? So it's a response to an invitation of a kind and a gracious and a loving God. Because when we understand what the gospel is and we understand the story of the gospel, what happens is we come into this place where we are mesmerized by the love of God that he has for us. It's not about performance. Louise preached on this. As I said, a dead person cannot respond. <laughs> a dead person cannot go, hey, I've done enough for God. No, you're dead. <laughs> you, you can't do anything for God. God has made us alive in Jesus Christ. So if it's not based on performance in terms of receiving salvation, how can it possibly be based on performance that I keep it? But we're going to get into that. See, salvation leads to believing loyalty because when I understand who God is, what he has done for me, and who I am in him, I cannot but respond to what he has called me to do. You see, it's different. I don't have to do stuff to, to, to receive the blessing of God. I have the blessing of God too. And there's a, there's a different view because if you stand in this place of going, well, I need to do this, I need to do that, and to, to, to appease God or to, to please him or to do whatever else, you will spend your life trying to perform for God rather than loving God and allowing him to love you. Here's the thing is, I've always understood the gospel is about, let's go and evangelize. On a Sunday morning here, we, we often have this thing of, hey, come to know Jesus. But actually, the gospel is also about discipleship. 
It's about evangelism, but it's also primarily about discipleship. So let's have a look. You know, the gospel, the gospel is beauty. I get, I get emotional when I start to consider what God has done for me personally. And you know that beauty dispels gloom and depression. What am I saying? Well, you just go into nature, and this is the kind of stuff. I mean, I literally saw this last week. Out in the breakers. I mean, these waves from, from afar look big, but when you're in the water, they are way bigger. They're probably up to the window there. And you're going, oh my goodness, if this thing hits me, I'm going to not come up out of the water. But there's a beauty about it, and there's a release and a peace that comes. I said in our prayer meeting, I know the Morgans have just been um, up into the Drakensberg and that beautiful Castleburn area is, 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 is a phenomenal place where also you just sense the kingdom of God. You sense the presence of God. You sense his majesty. You sense all of those things. And for me, the ocean and the mountains are that. I know others, it's the bush and that kind of stuff. But the point is, is there's this beauty of what nature is. And beauty is goodness made manifest to our senses. When we gaze upon beautiful things, what is the world doing right now? The world is destroying beautiful things. God wants to restore beautiful things. And what was interesting, when Angela read out Psalm 84, taste and see that the Lord is good. I want to encourage you, go and eat of God. We're not talking about cannibalism. I wish we, had, I wish we had actually had... Communion this morning where we could actually just eat of God because Jesus has come and do this as, as, as much as possible to remember what I've done for you. Remember me. Because all of what I've done for you, when we behold the beauty of his holiness, the gloom and depression dissipates. And that's all found within the context of discipleship. I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> The most embarrassing moment for the atheist is when they feel thankful, but they've got nobody to thank. Just staring and gazing at the ocean and watching the waves come in. Being in the ocean, and what was interesting was at Salt Rock, there was just thousands of fish around us. I've never seen that before. We were swimming and the dolphins came and were body surfing the waves. Not quite with us, but we could see them in the waves. And the beauty of all of that in God's creation brings a rest and a peace to our soul, to a place where we understand that actually God is here. And the modern world might be eroding beauty, but actually when we bring the gospel and we bring the beauty of the gospel, people respond to that because they know and they feel the peace of God, which Satan and his dominions and his little whatever cannot pervert. Peace is only created by God. It cannot be counterfeit. What is, what is the opposite of peace? Chaos and destruction, perversion and all of those things. So let's get on with this. What, why discipleship? Well, Matthew 20, 11 disciples went to Galilee. They went up the mountain. They saw Jesus. They worshipped him. Some doubted. I'm going I'm to unpack this a lot more next week. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. See, we often don't follow the next thing, do we? And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, because surely I'm with you to the end of the age. 
We're all called to be part of this. But how about, this is Dallas Willard's paraphrase, which I quite like. I've been given, say, stroke authority, over everything in heaven and earth, so go make apprentices to me among people of every kind or nation. Submerge them in the reality of the Trinitarian God and lead them into doing everything I've told you. Now look, I'm with you every minute until the job is completely done. Yes, paraphrase, but kind of gives a little bit of color to it, doesn't it? Like a brilliant man like Dallas Willard, who was a phenomenal gift to the church, who I think has been gone now for 10 years. Now, when we consider this text and this paraphrase, in all of this, what it's taking us back to is, like I said, the Abrahamic covenant. It's almost the Eden mandate, but it's 2.0. <laughs> it's let's, God has blessed us to be a blessing to the nations, to bring them back into God's fold. And so we are called to make disciples of nations, not converts. Interesting, isn't it? The thing is, what is a disciple? We need to understand what a disciple is and how do we know when a disciple is actually made? Who knows what a disciple is? I mean, I've given some answers in terms of an apprentice, which is probably in a better word. There's many complaints about the church, and I love Dallas Willard says, there isn't a thing wrong with the church today that discipleship would not cure. If we are being discipled by Jesus, and we are doing what Jesus has called us to be doing, there is nothing that would cause us to cause issues within the context of a local community called the church. Nothing. So, let's have a look at this. Let's look at what, you know, what, uh, making disciples of the kingdom. Like I've said, it's not about making converts, which is interesting. And so in all of this, when we have disciples, it changes everything that happens in the context of the church and outside. And I'm going to show you in a moment. Because the church is not the kingdom. I don't know if you know that. We don't want people to be converted to become churchgoers. We want people to become disciples of the kingdom of God, to come under the rule and reign of God, so that they will form part of a community that will be the vehicle and the outpost to bring the kingdom of God to the world. Again, do you see the slight difference? We don't want, oh, gee, we've got five salvations on Sunday. Oh, we've got five extra people that came to church. Let's put it on our belt. No, no, we want disciples of Jesus, not converts. The church is not the substitute for the kingdom. So let's look at who is an apprentice of Jesus. An apprentice of Jesus is a disciple or student, and I'm learning from him how to lead my life in the kingdom of God as he would lead it if he were I. That's what a disciple is. And it's in every single circumstance of my life that I'm learning to live like him. Being with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do the things that he would do if he were me. That is simply what discipleship is. And if we understand what that is, it really helps us into the next phase because the Holy Spirit is so key to this. Why did Jesus leave so that the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit could come and reside in each one of us? Because Jesus, as a human, could not jump into each one of us. He was limited to time and space. That's why he needed to go. So in, in John 14, 26, it says, but the advocate, that's the word paraclete, by the way. 
So it's amazing that God would call women paracletes when actually Jesus, if you read another text, Jesus was the original paraclete and he leaves a second paraclete called Holy Spirit. Just leave that with you. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So we cannot be disciples without Holy Spirit being resident in us and us listening to what Holy Spirit is doing in the leading of us every minute of the day. Okay? Okay, So there's three main aspects of discipleship. Learning to do as he did and he taught. That's the first thing. We don't learn by willpower. Do you know that? How many of you have tried New Year's resolutions and how's that gone for you? It doesn't work, does it? But we actually learn through practice until it becomes automatic. It's like riding a bicycle. I don't know. I remember when I learned to ride a bicycle. We had a back garden and we had a peach tree. And the only way to kind of do a circle would be to go around the peach tree and back up through the garden. The amount of times I bit the dirt. Because when you're moving, it's quite cool. But now you have to turn and you have to move your weight. And then after a while, like you can ride 94.7. So why did I ever struggle to ride a bicycle? But when you first get on a bicycle, it's not that easy, is it? How many of you have tried surfing? That's another level. Get on a surfboard and try and surf like those guys on the waves. Yeah, boogie bird is pretty easy, actually. But try and stand up on a surfboard, on a wave, going down a wave. And then you've got those guys who ride those crazy big waves. I mean, they are crazy people. I mean, I remember trying to water ski for the first time. This is really embarrassing, and I'll tell you about it, because it will at least bring some humor to a topic that can sometimes be a little... Um... Anyway, so I'm actually in the United States. I'm on a swimming tour in the United States, in Denver. First time I've ever water skied. I'm 13 years old. I'm wearing a Speedo. Okay, sorry for violating your imagination there. I now look like an elastic band when I wear, uh, around an egg when I wear a Speedo, but that'll, anyway, let me not violate your imagination anymore. But the point is, is I get up, I watch everyone else doing this, and I, okay, this is how you do it. So you hold and you, the boat pulls, and I stand up too soon. And of course, I'm not going fast enough, so I bounce on my backside. And this happens a few times. Now, I don't know if you know, but if you force water up certain aspects of your body, it gets really, really sore. But of course, I had an ego, and I wasn't going to let go. Nevertheless, it took me a few days to recover because, number one, don't ever wear a speedo when you water ski. And number two, just put the ego aside and just, you know, allow the boat to pull you up instead of trying to stand up too soon. I tell you all of that from a point of view of actually after a while, I got to be able to slalom and do all of those things because you learn how to allow things to happen and you allow the, the processes of the principles of aerodynamics and water and hydrodynamics and all of those things to work. And it's, you think, well, why did I struggle the first time to do that? Now, we try and do uh, spiritual disciplines when we actually don't know how to do it. We don't train. It's like us going and running the Comrades Marathon without doing any training. Really daft, but we do that. And so when we see in the Great Commission this whole thing of teaching to obey, now, it's amazing. I wonder if we... If we were properly being discipled by Jesus, 
And we had people, and I'm sure there's people here who goes, you know, how do I live with my husband who? How do I live with my wife who? How do I continue to work in this environment with the boss that? I wonder if we were really disciples of Jesus, that we would bring the kingdom of God into those places and bring about change, as opposed to reacting and actually bringing about maybe not the kingdom of God, but our own self-righteousness into those spaces. A guy, Adam Frauer, said to me, you know, we can be right, but are we being righteous? In your marriages, are you trying to be right or are you trying to be righteous? And I say that because Louise is normally right, and it's frustrating. But anyway, I won't go there. Even yesterday, we were coming back, and you, you come over the crest at um, uh, the Van Rennens Pass, and there's it, always 120 from there. And I'm like, it's definitely 120. She says, no, it's only 100. Of course, you get there's 100. Now, they've changed it, but she knew they had changed it. And whenever Louise is adamant about something, I should know she's right. But it is interesting that we... Follow Jesus' teachings until it becomes difficult. And then we throw it away. We don't deal with the stuff. So whatever, we find ourselves in these circumstances, but we throw all of that away because we want to be right. And we want to show everybody that we're right, as opposed to following the precedents that Jesus has put in place for us. Because if we were a disciple and we were living our lives as Jesus would be living it, we wouldn't be doing those things. I'm right there. I'm not, I'm not immune to this. Am I being discipled by Jesus? Am I doing what he would be doing if he were me? And the thing is, is when we train ourselves off the spot, then when those moments come in our day-to-day lives, we're able to respond on the spot like Jesus would have. But if you're trying to do that, just automatically it will not happen. Your self-righteousness will rise up inside of you and you will want to be right and you will fight for your rights. Handling ordinary life, the next aspect of this, and I'm going to show you a model in a moment. And what we're trying to say here, there are principles in God's kingdom. You know that Jesus didn't speak about everything. He didn't tell us that we needed to obey the speed limit, did he? Obviously, in my mind from yesterday. (laughs) But there's principles that he spoke of that tell me that actually submitting to authority and the laws of the land is something that I should be doing. That's why I submit myself to the speed limit as much as I want to just get home. With all of this stuff, though, it goes into bad business. It goes into family. It goes into disputes. It goes into difficult meetings. It goes into all of this. It should be pervading us and going, not what would Jesus do? No, what would Jesus do if he were me? And living the life that I should be leading with the kingdom of God in the context of the reign and rule of God in my life. The world should be coming to the church for answers. But the church is a mess because we are not being discipled by Jesus. The bride doesn't look very beautiful. She's got a torn dress. She's got scrapes on her face. Her hair's a mess. She's got one shoe on. Her dress is torn. Why? Because we are not being discipled by Jesus and we allow all of these things to come into our midst and we actually cannibalize each other rather than being the model through which the world can see the beauty of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, evident in our lives. Thirdly, 
we're learning to act in the power of God. We need the power of God to get through this. I don't know about you, but when, when I see what Jesus did, how can I do that? How can I be as gracious as him? I just want to punch the guy or give him a Glaswegian kiss because I'm from Glasgow. The point is, is that's what rises up inside of me. That's what I want to do. But actually, you know, how do I respond like Jesus in a nonviolent way as much as I want to do that? If I'm not training off the spot, then when somebody does that to me, I know being a number eight on the Enneagram, one of the things is, is betrayal is the thing that just takes me out. Because I'm loyal. I'm loyal to a fault. I will, I will do crazy things for people just to be loyal for them and to them. But when they break that loyalty and they betray me, that's it. <laughs> I, I, but is that the way Jesus would be acting? But Jesus said, forgive as I have forgiven you. But, but God, this one's different. <laughs> my, my circumstances are different. I don't need to forgive this person because of, and I become self-righteous. Instead of being with Jesus, becoming like him, so that I would act in the way that he would if he were me. So when we talk about this, it's about bringing the kingdom of God to bear in every single aspect of human need, both individually and socially. All of what we do, and it could be as simple as a prayer. Now, I love what Dallas Woolard calls prayer. Prayer is the power-sharing device for a world of recovering sinners. Prayer is a power-sharing device for a world of recovering sinners. When we start to pray and when we start to understand that our prayer is a gift and it's for the benefit of others, then what we do is we don't go, sheesh, I'm not going to pray for that person because they may not get healed. Oh, no, you just made it all about yourself now. Actually, maybe the prayer was just to love on them and for you to walk away for them feeling loved and for you saying, I'm praying for you, not just, oh, I'm praying for you, but you never do, but actually going to pray for people because we believe that God heals. And if he doesn't, at least the person feels loved by you and not judged by you. And how's this? Dallas Willard says this, but I've got it right there. God, please don't give me more power than my character can be. Because I will hurt people and I will be like a baby with a power tool. And you can just think of what that looks like. So where do I do discipleship? Where do we do discipleship? Actually, where you move and have your being. When you leave here and you go to the shops, you, you're a disciple. When you're at work, you're a disciple. In every aspect of our lives, what we are doing is we're learning from Jesus to do everything that I'm doing in the kingdom of God, no matter where I'm going. When I'm in the sports field, when I'm in the swimming, field, I'm swimming pool, when I'm, when I'm loving on people, when I'm at home, when I'm on holiday, am I doing these things? Like Brother Lawrence, am I practicing the presence of God in my home, in my work, in my play, in all of what I do? Colossians says, whatever you do, within word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and Father through him. And so if we understand that, then our workplace is probably the most specific place where we spend most of our time. And if we exclude God from our workplace, we've excluded God from most of our life. So what are we doing in our workplace? And how are we extending the kingdom of God and the Eden mandate there? Are we being disciples of Jesus? And are we doing what Jesus would be doing if he was me? But here's the, the kicker, is our job and our ministry is not your life. It's a mechanism, like the church is not the kingdom. 
your job and your ministry is not your life. Actually, God's more interested in who you become rather than what you do. And you know that that's the biggest gift that you can give him is who you are becoming and who you become, the side of Project Planet Earth. Alexander Fenter said that to us some number of times, didn't he? He said, do we grow up to be these angry, bitter people because people have betrayed us and hurt us and whatever the case is, or do we take this to Jesus through our day-to-day walk and what we're doing in the content of all of what we're doing? Are we preaching a gospel that produces disciples or are we preaching a gospel that produces consumers of religious goods and services? Are you here to be entertained or are you here to learn about the magnificence of the gospel of Jesus Christ that when you appropriate that, you become an increased disciple of his and you follow him and you become more like him and you start to live your life out like he would if he were you? Or is it just about, oh no, I'm just going to go to church to consume. Oh, Dale and Jordan, where was the drummer today? Actually, this is too complicated, Gary. Actually, we should rather be doing this. No, no, let me come and tickle your ears. Let, me, let, let us become something that, that makes you feel good. No, no, I'd rather be somebody that speaks the truth, that offends your mind to get to your heart, that actually transformation happens. And I'm not trying to offend you. I mean, I've said this before. It's often new visitors come in and I said, look, the reality is I'm imperfect. I'm going to offend you one day. I'm going to say something stupid from the front. Hopefully I'm quick to repent. And hopefully those who've been around know I'm genuinely very good at repenting when I know I've overstepped the mark. And asking an apology, asking, you know, apologizing for what I've done or what I've said. Because when you're up here, sometimes your brain and your just doesn't work. And you say some stupid things. So sometimes when we have new visitors, and if you are visitors here, afterwards, let me just offend you right away, so then you can just choose whether you want to stay or not. <clears throat> the point is, is we must know what the true gospel is, not just the partial aspects of it. Because if we, if we don't have the true, what, what, then what happens is, is we land up with, with churches where actually you are dependent on me as the pastor. If you know that I'm not preaching, you're not going to come to church. But why are you coming to church then? Because church is a community and it's a family. And what starts to happen is, is we are training up new musicians. We're training up new people to sing and to lead us in worship. Sometimes they push the wrong keys and they play the wrong key. Sometimes they sing in the wrong key. Sometimes we have new preachers and, and people are learning to do stuff and they don't do it as well as others and seasoned people. But isn't that part of family? We don't go to our little, the little toddlers and going, Flip, why can't you ride a bicycle, you chop? No, we, we help them and we grow. Yeah. So as a pastor, I'm telling you now, I am freeing you from following me. Now, there are times that I, I will be there to disciple you and help you on the road because we need that. But please don't be dependent on me because the objective is to actually be discipled by Jesus and be dependent on him. My objective is to show you Jesus and to be discipled by him, not me. Because I am imperfect and I will disappoint you in the most unhelpful ways. But he won't. Because he's already demonstrated that by dying for all of us. It's not a gospel of sin management. Please don't try and manage your sin. Because that's what legalism does, doesn't it? As long as I think rightly about Jesus, I'm okay. 
Because actually, discipleship is the special religious effort. When I do my disciplines, God is going to bless me. It's cause and effect. No, no. Spiritual disciplines is not to please God. Spiritual disciplines are to get me to Jesus. To train off the spot that when I'm on the spot and some muppet at work does something to me, I don't slap them. But I go, okay, Lord, give me grace and patience to be able to deal with them. Now, my kids have spoiled that word for me. Because the latest slang is when you have something, like Dylan's eating his food, and he goes, gee, mom, that slapped, eh? I'm like, what are you talking about, that slapped? So now we tease them, you know, so, hey, Dylan, were you slapped by that food today? You know? So they've made slap this positive word, which, okay, let's use it in the context of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let me slap you. <laughs> you will feel good afterwards. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so when we do this gospel of sin management, it's about showing that I'm doing the right things. I'm going to go and say hello to everybody because that's what I should do as the pastor. Know that when I come around, I actually really want to say hello to you. I've told the people, let's, get, let's finish the prayer meeting so I can come say hello. We were late this morning. I didn't get to see all of you. It's the one time in the week that I get to greet you and say, how's it? Because after I finish preaching, I get inundated and you leave and I don't get to see you. So part of the process is I don't want to do this because I'm trying to show everybody that I'm, I'm this good pastor. I'm a very mediocre pastor, let me tell you. And I'm not trying to act whatever. The point is, is I love you and I want to lead you into more of God and I want to lead you to be discipled by Jesus. Not be discipled by me and you become codependent on me or any of our leaders. We had a couple with, with Louise and I. Um, I actually didn't do the, 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 the wedding. I was actually the, the best man at the wedding. But it was a couple that were in the church that we were part of and on eldership. And, uh, and this couple got married by the guy who was leading the church. And we had counseled them through their pre-marriage counseling and all of that. And guess what starts to happen? Every second day we get a call from them. Oh, my husband this. Oh, my wife this. We got to a point where we said, stop calling us. So, so Janine, you know, we're going to tell you the story in your marriage counseling. We're about to start their marriage counseling. That's why she's laughing. Is, you know what? 95% of the stuff is married couples. You should sort out yourself. Don't get dependent on people to come sort it out. Grow up and actually be mature and respond like Jesus would respond if he was living your life and if he was your husband or your wife. And in all of this, there's not a natural bridge from faith to obedience and then to abundance. Because I'm actually just showboating. I actually don't really know Jesus that intimately. I know about him. I know part of the Bible. And I can hoe you with scripture. I mean, how many people do we know that we're in church that can hoe scripture, but they're no longer serving God? I wonder if they ever knew him. They knew about him and they liked the concept of who he was but I don't think they ever crossed this, the, the line of salvation in my personal view. Not up for me to decide, because there are people who are prodigals and all those kind of things, but some of them who are so vehemently against God, are, they, they have not seen the beauty of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel of the kingdom life now, that's what we we're about. It's the faith and confidence in Jesus Christ and his present kingdom that naturally leads me to see my whole life as a redemptive story. No matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, as I'm interacting with Jesus and I'm interacting with everybody else, discipleship is about learning from Jesus in every aspect that he would lead me in my life as though he was leading and 
Oh, he was me. Transformation will not come to you or to me or to this community without discipleship. And that's why we've got a mandate to make disciples of all nations. And it's important for us to understand that. Here's a little model just for you to remember as I close. Look at that. If we don't have Holy Spirit who's leading and reminding us of Jesus, then what happens is we have our ordinary events in life, the temptations and the trials, James chapter 1 right there. That's what happens here. But we are put on the spot here. But if we are not pla- don't have planned disciplines that lead us to Jesus, that help us be with him, to become like him, that we are being trained off the spot, we will not be able to respond like him when we are on the spot. See, disciplines or activities we can engage that lead us to Jesus. It's an indirect. Like I said, we cannot do it by willpower. It's through indirect. Go and run the Comrades Marathon without training by willpower. I challenge you to do that. Go and ride 94.7 without training by willpower. But if you train indirectly for the race, when you actually come to race day, you'll be ready to do it. See, in my power... (laughs) I have the power in the context of disciplines. It's the one thing I can control. I can't control my life and what happens in my life and the events. I can't control Holy Spirit. He's God. But what I can control and what enables me is the disciplines that I put into my life. And what happens is it slowly comes to a place where I stop trying to do the things Jesus said and rather do the things that enable me to do the things that Jesus said. Different focus, isn't it? And I know many cannot actually do these disciplines. We see it as either legalistic or it's too hard, but stop trying with willpower. Why? Because you don't have a vision. You actually don't really intend to, or potentially you don't have the means or you don't know how to. And I'm going to address that next week. And I love this little thing. Because I said, be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he would do if he were us. No, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. Here's some resources. If you really are serious about discipleship, go to practicingtheway.org, John Mark Comer. It is brilliant, number one. And don't just go use it. If you are going to use it, contribute. It's a crowdfunded thing. Go to our thing. We're building our own Practicing the Way under Lifehouse Church, backslash or forward slash whatever, grow. Go and see. We've got a whole bunch of stuff there. And we're adding to it as we go because you can't just, we started some years ago. There's messages there, there's content there, and it helps you be with Jesus, become like him, so we can do the things that he would do if he were us. And Dallas Willard, hey, he's the goat. He really is. And Peter Scazzaro, emotionally healthy spirituality. Because you can know the Bible back to front, but if you are spiritually immature, you will destroy yourself and the people around you. Won't you stand, please? This is not about guilt and condemnation. You know that. This is not about shame. And and I know when we talk about this stuff, it's like, oh, I'm not doing enough. Well, already you are preaching the wrong gospel to yourself. We are called to preach the gospel of grace, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that when we are like him, 
I think we're harder on ourselves than anybody else. So don't allow that now to stop you from engaging. All we're going to do is just, I think, enter into time of worship. I want to stop talking now. Probably gone longer because I haven't preached for a while. So I had to just kind of get my, my catch up. I'm just teasing. But I wanted to take this slow because, as you can see from our summary, is when we see what the gospel really is, when we see what God has done over the ages, and we are preaching that into the context and so not sin management gospel, it unlocks stuff within us to become all God has created us to be, individually and a community. There is nothing that discipleship won't cure in a community. There is nothing that discipleship won't change in our, transform in our own hearts to become more like Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. And let's worship and let me pray for you as we, as we begin. And Lord, I, with humility, you know my own heart, you know my own failings. I know I said Dallas Willard is the goat, but you are the goat. <laughs> you are the ultimate greatest of all time and beyond time. And so we, we, we stop again for a moment to worship you in the beauty of your holiness. We say, Lord Jesus, come. You know, I know in Revelation it says, and the spirits and the bride say, come. We want your second coming, Lord. And I think you've got a sense of humor. You're probably going to come on a long weekend like this weekend. As everybody's away. But the point is, is Lord, we, we desperately are in need of you. And we know that in our own brokenness, we don't want our own brokenness to overcome us, that we become destructive to ourselves and others around us. And so we step into your space again, Lord. Where maybe we've stepped away, I step into it. And I say, Lord Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to lead my life like you would if you were me. So disciple me, Lord Jesus. I give myself afresh to you. And I'm trusting that there's people here this morning that say yes to you. Yes, Jesus, help me. I've tried before and I've tried in my own willpower, but now I want to find disciplines that suit my lifestyle, that lead me to you and to be with you, to become like you. Lord, won't you receive this as a fragrant offering of worship to you as we finish? In Jesus' name.